Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit be present with us as you have promised to open up your word to us, to draw us close to yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ethan, when we were talking about our Christ and culture series, decided that I needed to preach on singleness. Well, I've never really been single. I, uh, I went to college, but that was more like extended adolescence. I was single for three months where I went to work played softball, ate pizza, and mowed the lawn. And then I got married, and my life turned into something kind of awesome. But my single years were, my single months, (laughs) were rather bland. Uh, Beth and I, though, just passed our 19th wedding anniversary. We were married on October the 17th, uh, 1998. So we just passed 19 years this week, and it's been a really good 19 years. But as a person who has been married for a long time and has not had to deal with the issues of being single, I thought, I have no idea um, what I'm going to talk about because uh, I have a lot to say about marriage. I really don't have a lot to say about being single. But that's okay because I've learned a lot in marriage and, and maybe some of that will show through. One of the things I do know about, though, is loneliness. And maybe you do, too. Maybe you know a bit about what it means to be Lonely. I suspect when we talk about singleness, that's really the issue that comes into our mind, right? We're going to be isolated. We're going to be alone. We're going to grow old. There's not going to be anyone to take care of us. Um, I don't mean to brag, but I'm set. I've got a wife and three daughters. There'll be women taking care of me forever, okay? Um, but, but I know that loneliness is a real thing. I, I can think of times when, when I've been lonely. Maybe you can. My first year of college, I, I still wanted, I wanted to play football, and there was a small school in West Virginia that was going to let me play football. And I went, and I was having some success. Things were going well, but I was completely and totally miserable. Uh, I was at a small school in the middle of nowhere where everyone had a car and left on the weekends. I did not have a car, so I stayed behind with all the people who sat in their rooms smoking pot. And... I would sit in my room with the windows open and smell that drifting in through the windows all weekend long. And after about six months of that, I thought, what am I doing? Um, yeah, I'm playing sports, but my shoulder hurts, my knee hurts, my head hurts, my neck hurts. Like, this is starting to get ridiculous. But I remember laying in bed and just being so alone. That was, without question, the loneliest time of my life. And maybe, maybe you've been there. And maybe you're afraid that that's the way your life is always going to be, lonely and alone and isolated. Uh, I think this really is one of our big cultural fears. Uh, you know, I was, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought to myself, WWEMD, what would Ethan Magnus do? Um, and, and, and Ethan Magnus... Ethan Magnus, at this point in the sermon, would go back in his vast knowledge of pop culture and he would pull out a song. Uh, and what I know about Ethan, and I, I love Ethan, but Ethan's pop culture knowledge stops at like 1987. <laughs> so I went to 1969, Three Dog Night, One is the Loneliest Number. 
If you ever just stop for a minute and read these kind of songs out loud, you can't help but laugh. Now, I have listened to this song off and on all week. This is one of those songs that when it gets in your head, it does not leave, okay? One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. <laughs> no, no is the saddest experience you'll ever know. Yes, it's the saddest experience you'll ever know. Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. One is the loneliest number, whoa-oh, worse than two. It's almost like Dr. Seuss in its rhythm. It's just no good anymore since you went away. Now I spend my time just making rhymes of yesterday. Um, uh, one is not the loneliest number. One may be the loneliest number, uh, if you actually look to something like marriage as the thing that's going to make you ultimately happy. And if you can't have that thing that's going to make you ultimately happy, then one becomes the loneliest number. But Paul and Jesus, who were both single, by the way, have something to say about singleness and about celibacy and about what that means. And they would both stand here today and tell you that one is not the loneliest number. It's not. So I want to look at a few things uh, this evening. Uh, I want to look first at two cultural idolatries that we have. I want to look a bit at the gift of singleness. And then I want to talk about what it means to have true family. So first about these two cultural idolatries. I have to admit I, I owe a debt to Tim Keller. Uh, I've read a lot of his and listened to several of his uh, sermons here in the last couple of weeks. And he points out something that I think is very, very true in our current cultural climate as it relates to marriage and singleness. He says that we have two idolatries that we tend to fall into. One of them, we in this room are probably guilty of. The first is the idolatry of family. Uh, this is the sin of, of a more conservative crowd, perhaps more of your small town, Grove City kind of crowd. Uh, we, we see marriage and family as the ultimate sign that you've arrived. Now this is not entirely different than the way uh, marriage and family were viewed in the Old Testament. If you remember under the Old Covenant, Abraham was promised three things. He was promised land, he was promised descendants, and he was promised blessing. And if you were a person living under the Old Covenant, particularly if you were a woman who was not married and did not have children, it was seen as God's curse upon you. You clearly had sinned and lost out. But in the New Testament, uh, that, that old idea passes away. And Christianity is perhaps the only world religion that actually says out loud, there is a legitimate place for single people in the kingdom of God. Singleness is a legitimate way to live. And so we, though, perhaps fall into this idolatry of family. Uh, and you guys know, listen, I know a lot of you in here are single I'm glad you're here because now I have something to say to you. Um, but you know how it is when you go and you visit your friends or your family and they look to you and they say, you know, I know this like good girl over here. Or I know, and they're trying to set you up. Now, I fully admit, I, I want to set people up. I do. Um, I have found people jobs. I have found them cars. I have found them houses. I have yet to get two people married. It's on my bucket list. If you want to be, if you want to be set up, Come talk to me, all right? I'll figure it out. I know people. <clears throat> but, you know, 
but part of this is part of this cultural, <laughs> this cultural uh, idolatry that we have, right? That we see a single person and our first thought is, who can we get them married off to? Well, maybe, just maybe, God has plans for them that has nothing to do with family. Maybe God has plans for you that have nothing to do with family. This is hard. Don't be mad at me. I'm just trying to preach what's there. So we have this idolatry of, of family that I think we conservatives have put the family on a certain pedestal. And I think in the current cultural problems that we have in relation to marriage and who can be married, I think we have contributed to the problem. Because we have talked about marriage in such a way that makes it seem that if you can just find someone to love you and be married and be recognized, that all your problems will go away and your life will be better. And anyone who is married knows that that just isn't true. You probably didn't know it the day before your wedding, but within a few days after it, you knew. Now, I say that not to disparage marriage at all. I mean, last week, Ethan preached a great sermon on the nature of, of marriage. And I find it really interesting that Paul, who has this exalted view of marriage as, as a symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church, is also the same one in our passage tonight saying, I think it's better if you just stay single. Like, it's not one or the other. You can actually have a place for both in the kingdom of God. And so we have to kind of get over this idolatry of family. The other idolatry that we see is perhaps one that we're not as guilty of, but it's the idolatry of hyper-individualism. You don't tend to see this in a more rural place. You might see this in a larger city like New York or L.A. or Chicago. I don't know. Uh, I, I've always been a bit of a bumpkin. I don't know what happens in large cities. <laughs> But, but, but you may see this in a place where, where someone says, you know, really marriage is about me. And marriage is about making me happy. And this person, whoever my future spouse may be, has to really check all the boxes. They have to have a really good portfolio before I'm going to accept them as a spouse. They have to be good looking and fit, eat right, probably a vegan. I don't know. Uh, I think that's what they do in New York. I don't know. Um, you know, they've got to, they've got to be good. They've got to be perfect. I have a friend in Texas who always says that everyone's looking to marry a Ferrari and maybe we should settle for Volkswagens. We'd all be happier. Um, uh, he may have a point there. So we have this idea of this hyper-individualistic idea that my spouse is here to suit me. And so marriage becomes about me. Uh, I kid you not, when we lived in Dallas, we uh, knew a lady, my wife Beth, she worked at um, a Christian school there. and She had a co-worker who if I told you her last name and you were familiar at all with the social scene in Dallas, you would know that her family were millionaires. They were well-known around the city. They were well-connected. She had moved into her 30s and was unmarried. And Beth was talking to her one time about why she wasn't married. And I don't know the context of the conversation, but essentially this young woman said to her that she's had suitors and the guy that she's talking to now, though, he's only worth a half a million dollars. And that just wasn't going to be enough. Now, of course, I got married with like 20 bucks. So, so you know, I, I don't even understand that world. Uh, and yet, yet, see, see, professors know, you're like, yeah, I still only have 20 bucks. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't understand that world, but I know that world exists. 
And even if it's not about money, it could be about education. It could be about emotional security. It could be, I know, I love, I love you Grove City students. I do, but I spoke at, I spoke at your, uh, the freshman retreat last year. And I remember saying to the students, listen, sometimes on a Friday night, you just got to put the books down and go find a girl and go to a movie. Like, go live your life. And one of the RDs who was there said to me, they don't do that. <laughs> it's too hard here. Listen. It's too hard because you guys think that everything has to be perfect before you can ever even talk to someone, right? Lower your expectations because your expectations are probably kind of weird. And just accept people, just expect, accept people as people and live, and live your life. Live your life. This idea of hyper-individualism that everything has to be perfect and fit into your life is another form of idolatry. And it's probably what leads us into the marriage crisis that we find ourselves in as a, as a nation, you get married and all of a sudden someone says, well, I never really loved my spouse, so I'm leaving. Or we've just grown apart. No, what's, what's really happened is that you decided that marriage was all about you. And, and that's why your marriage fell apart. And so we have these two, these two idols that we need to just, we just need to kill these things. And both Paul and Jesus, they do that. And so I want to get into our passage in 1 Corinthians and talk a little bit about what it means to be single in the Christian sense. What does it mean to be single? Now, I'm going to summarize a lot of what's here because essentially what Paul is saying in our, in our lesson tonight is stay where you are. Accept the condition you are in and accept it as a good thing and a gift. I'll read a bit of it. I think that in view of the present distress... It is good for a person to remain as he is. Present distress being uh, potential persecution, struggles. Stay as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. Uh, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Paul's point is not that uh, Christ is about to return and things are about to be radically transformed. I, I don't think he's looking eschatologically in, in an immediate sort of sense. I think what he's saying is that life is short and everything in this life is, is temporary. And in light of the distress you're in, in light of the condition you're in, you need to live as if these things are held lightly. Uh, don't put all of your hopes in these things. If you're a business person, act as if you don't have business in the world because all that you see, whatever condition you currently find yourself in, it's temporary. Your singleness ultimately is temporary. Your marriage, ultimately, is temporary. Your condition as an employee or a parent or a child is ultimately uh, temporary. In an eternal sense, these things and the forms that we know are all going to pass away. Um, Jesus tells us that when asked uh, who... You have a man who's been married several times. Uh, who is he married to when he gets to heaven? He says, you have no idea, Pharisees, what you're talking about. Because in heaven, no one will be married and no one will be given in marriage. Marriage as we know it won't apply in heaven. 
uh, because in heaven, in, in, the, in the eschaton, in the, the age that is to come, in the world that is to come, we're married to Christ. All of us. That's the image of marriage that we saw last week, that husband and wife is the image of Jesus being married to the church. Jesus is our spouse, ultimately. And whatever condition we find ourselves in, it is temporary. And so Paul says to his, to his audience, don't worry about your singleness. Don't worry about your marriedness. Don't worry about your business. Don't worry about these things as if they last forever, because they don't. Even if you live your entire earthly life and you are never married, it is still temporary. It is still temporary. And you are still married to Christ. He also says something else. It's actually not in our passage. It's a few verses before. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. In the verses before that, Paul has just went into a fairly lengthy explanation that if you are burning with passion and need to be married, really you should just be married. Just be done with that. But... He says this, Now, I, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What he's saying there in 1 Corinthians 7, 6, is that all that he said before about being married or not married, that's his concession. Singleness is not the concession. Singleness is not second prize. In Paul's thinking right here, the concession is you should be married if you really can't handle being single. That's the concession. But if you can live a single life in service of God, in service of Jesus Christ, in in service of the gospel, that is the better option. Now this is hard, okay? This is hard. Because I remember reading this verse in college with some of my college buddies and us looking at each other saying, do you think you have the gift of singleness? And I said, I don't know. But inside I was thinking, please, Lord, no. (laughs) Please, no. But it is called a gift. And almost every time Peter or Paul is talking about gifts, he's talking about something you have been given by God. A special ability that allows you to serve him in a unique way. But it's called a gift not just because it's an ability. It's called a gift because it's a gift. Your singleness, if you are never married, your singleness is a gift. It it gives you something that you wouldn't have otherwise. And Paul, in his passage, gives a lot of descriptions about the differences between being married and being single. But here's what Paul, and, and what I want to say to you. If you find yourself in the position of being single, and maybe you'll be single forever, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's still a gift to you. Because you have something that other people don't. And you can celebrate it. And you can also, though, use it in a way um, that married people can't use their giftedness. Paul talks about that. Uh, You're free to do things in a way that you're not uh, when you're married. Um, Some of those things may be uh, just on a basic level. You can have more and deeper friendships as a single person than as a married person. As soon as you're married, your concerns become your spouse and your kids and your immediate family. It just does. You don't have time for as many friends as you do when you're single. There's also a trap you can fall into when you're married that you can put your spouse on a pedestal. They become your idol. They're there to make you happy, which is always a bad decision. Don't don't do that ever. Okay? But you put your spouse on a pedestal and say, well, that's the person that's supposed to make me happy. That, That hinders some marriages. But in a friendship, you almost never put your friends on a pedestal. 
I have a lot of friends from college and growing up. I'm still friends with them. I'm good friends with them. None of them are on pedestals. They're all kind of goofy. And I remember when they were dumb 12-year-olds, you know. They're not on any pedestal. But you can have real friendships in a deeper way that become much more difficult as a married person because your attention is just spread too thin and you've got too many responsibilities when you're married. Your freedom, you have freedom to pursue mission and service of Christ in a way when you are single that you do not have when you're married. Beth and I were married right out of college. I went right after one year of working construction and fishing, probably the best year of my life. I went back to college, began some of the hardest years of my life, should have stayed fishing. I went back to seminary, should have stayed fishing. But anyway, uh, I did not spend my 20s working diligently in any sort of ministry. I was pursuing my own goals looking to to get a degree, looking to go off and and be a pastor. My sister, on the other hand, got out of college, uh, joined a couple different mission organizations, and over the course of the rest of her 20s, lived in Mozambique, Australia, South Africa, um, and various parts of uh, the country, working around doing different kinds of ministry. She did that for almost 10 years. That was something that I, as a married person, uh, couldn't do. I have a single friend, uh, had a single friend who, who is married now and has kids, but for a number of years he was single. And every year he and eight buddies went fly fishing in Montana. I really wanted to go. But they would go for like a month, and that just wasn't possible. That just wasn't possible. When you're single and you can live off of, you know, peanuts, it's possible. There are things you can do to enjoy your life and to minister that you just can't do in the same way. When you're married. And that's something to celebrate. If you find yourself in the next few years still young and still single, use it well. Use it well. God's going to bless it. It's, it's a gift. It's not something you have to get past. It's something you can use well. And you should enjoy it. Uh, you can delight in your singleness because you are, you, you are undistracted in your affections and undivided in your devotion. As a pastor, I I love serving the church. But every decision I've ever made as a pastor is complicated because my children are involved and my wife is involved. Any of you who are fathers or mothers and work and are offered job opportunities in other places have to weigh all the cost-benefit analysis. Is it worth it to uproot my family? What's the downside going to be? What's the money going to be? How are we going to pay for braces? Will my kids meet new friends or will it be a, they're in a good situation now. Will it be a bad situation later? When you're married, you are simply not free because the ramifications of your decisions are greater. When you are single, you can drop everything and go most of the time. And that's a benefit. That's why Paul says it's good to be single for the sake of the gospel. God can use you in a way that he cannot use other people. A third thing, another thing that that we can delight in is when you're single, you can practice practice a heroic celibacy. You can make a statement to the world as a single Christian, not about your own righteousness, but about the sufficiency of Christ. You see, that's what really this is all about. Uh, for the married person or the unmarried person, the message that Paul wants to send is that Christ is sufficient. And, and there are ways in which your singleness is a gift and it's a calling. Living as a Christian 
in this culture will make a loud statement. Living as a single Christian in this culture will make a loud statement. And your life becomes a message and it becomes a word of the gospel. Marriage is, is about the gospel. It's about Jesus' relationship to, her church, to his church. But singleness is about the gospel also. The single Christian sends the message to the world that his or her ultimate identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And we don't need a spouse to be complete. You are complete because you are in Christ. You are complete because you are in Christ. Not because someone else put a ring on your finger. You're complete because you're in Christ. The single person, the single Christian can tell the world that satisfaction and sufficiency in Christ goes further than any spouse can. And the single person becomes a picture for the church that no person is truly alone or without a family. You as a single person are sending, you as a single Christian person following the Lord are sending a message to the rest of us that we need to know. And that is, That in Christ there is sufficiency, and in the church there can be family. Now, we don't always do it. We don't always do it very well, do we? We don't. Uh, We don't do it well, really, at all. And I want to warn us, because even though there are all of these pluses to to being single, there are some downsides. Uh, I know a lot of, I know all of you, I know you. I know a lot of you are single. I know you struggle with isolation. And I know you struggle with loneliness. And there are at least two types of isolation that I can identify. There may be more. One of them is a circumstantial kind of isolation. Because of circumstances beyond your control, you find yourself kind of alone. And I would say to my, to my married friends here, I know you're busy. I know your kids are doing stuff. I know you're tired. Look for the people who aren't like you. Open up your home. Have, have your single friends in. Have these college students in as much as you can. They need family. They need family. They need people. For you that that are single, don't wait for someone to befriend you. This is one of the worst things I see people do in a church. They come in and they say, nobody talked to me. You're right, okay? Nobody talked to you. Did you talk to anybody? (laughs) You go talk to someone. Don't wait. If you're single and you're feeling isolated, don't expect the world to know it. Don't expect anyone to be able to read your mind. you got to reach out. If you're here and you're, tell me, tell Ethan, we'll do what we can to help get you connected. So don't allow your circumstances to dictate your isolation. It doesn't have to be that way. There's also a self-imposed sort of isolation. It's not circumstantial. We do it to ourselves. I have met people, not very many, but I have met people and I get the sense that um, the reason why they want to be single or say that they're single is really because they're hurt. And they want to keep control. And they don't want to be hurt again. And so there's a sort of self-imposed isolation. They withdraw. If that's you, you need to know that, that it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to hide and withdraw. That sort of isolation is really antithetical to being part of God's family. If you're the sort of person that says, I don't need friends. I'm just going to kind of go to church and go to school and just do my thing. That's antithetical to what it means to be a Christian single person. Because a Christian single person, like all Christians, is supposed to be pouring themselves out for others. 
Don't spend your singleness on yourself. Spend it on others. There'll be great reward in your life for it. There will be. And so, being a Christian single does have some pitfalls. There is the pitfall of of isolation and loneliness. Um, But, Jesus kind of pushes back on that idea too. In our gospel lesson, uh, this is really a crazy little uh, lesson here. Mark chapter 3. Uh, It opens with a scene that when he went home, Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus has just been out ministering. He's roaming around Capernaum, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and the people are flocking to him. They're flocking to him to the point that when he goes into a house, they're like in the house and outside the house and looking through the window to the point that he can't even eat. And somewhere, his family, this is fascinating, his family has decided that he's around doing these miracles and saying these crazy things about himself, and he must be nuts. And they're going to stage an intervention. You know, they're going to set him down and be like, Jesus, you know, we're worried about you. You know, you're, you're, you're saying these crazy things, and, you know, people like you, but other people hate you. Like, really, you just need to see how you're affecting everyone around you. need to see how you're affecting us. Like, we've got an answer for you, and you're, you're just acting crazy. And so they go to get him to do this intervention. And uh, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. That's kind of funny, too. They didn't go in the house. Like, go get Jesus. Tell him to come out here. We don't want to make a scene. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus pushes back against these two idolatries. He pushes back against our own family idolatry. This idea that your husband, your wife, your mother, your kids, they are the center of your life. He says, no, they're really not. Not ultimately. Ultimately, your family are the people of God. The people who follow me. And right now, my family thinks I'm nuts. <laughs> and you're following me, and you're my family. You're my family. And this is a good word for us. This is a good word. If you come from a rough home, a rough background, Jesus' word for you is that you have a family. Yeah. He's your family. Hopefully, we could be your family. You don't have to be alone. There's a family there. So he pushes back against our conservative family idolatry. But he also pushes back against our hyper-individualism. Because he's calling his family, the people that are sitting around them, he's calling them into something bigger. He's not calling them to just follow him because he's doing miracles and saying cool things. Eventually, he's going to tell them that to follow him means you have to pick up your cross and be willing to die. He's calling us out of our selfish individuality into something bigger and magnificent that can be really beautiful can be really beautiful. And so Paul and Jesus uh, would tell Three Dog Night that one is not the loneliest number. That the only loneliest number, whether it be one or a thousand, are the people who don't have Christ. Those are the numbers that are lonely. Because in Christ, you have a spouse. In Christ, you have a family. And uh, your isolation will end. Because all of this is temporary. All of it. And that's something worth, worth smiling about. Come your way. Come your way. Oh.
Jesus' love.